John chapter 2, picking it up with verse 23. There's only two verses. I do too. At least once a year we should have something. Not the Virginia mud snow, that, you know, something nice. All right. Verse 23, John chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and he had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Three verses actually, sorry, let us pray. Father, we just come before you again. We ask for the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate this text. In fact, the whole scriptures, Lord. Written by you, we pray, Lord, that you would give me the, uh, the help and strength to deliver it correctly, theologically correctly. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak to each heart. Those that know you, they'd leave this place more in love with you. And if anyone doesn't know you, Lord, that they would be drawn to the grace and mercy of your salvation, which you freely give to all that are willing to come. Lord, we pray that you'd show us the difference between true and false conversion, and we'd understand that. But Lord, we would look to you, the author and finisher of our faith, for all that we need for life and godliness here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be dismissed. Uh, not dismissed. Sit down. That's it. You heard from Billy Graham. You don't need to hear from me. So, you know. All right. Okay, well, we left off last week with Jesus clearing out the temple temporarily because it was going to refill with all that same collection of things that he was against. But you remember he took a whip and he drove out the money changers, the, the sellers of the animals, the animals themselves, declaring that they had made his father's house a den of thieves. God's holy place had been made a den of sin. You'll recall they asked him for a sign that he had the legitimacy to correct them. But he said only one sign would be given, and that was that the temple would be destroyed and that he would raise it back up in what? Three days. He was speaking, of course, of the crucifixion and the resurrection, which would come two years later after the second time that he would clear out the temple and the money changers. Nobody really understood that Jesus was referring to his temple as his body. Even his disciples, they didn't get it until after he had risen from the dead. Nobody understood what Jesus announced, that what he announced would be the greatest expression of love the world would ever see. And John, refer John references uh, verse 22, that the disciples, go back to verse 22, which we didn't read, that the disciples believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. John references there that their faith in him would be stronger post-resurrection. Make sense? It would get stronger after the resurrection. But he moves immediately here to verse 23 that looks like on its face to be great news as it appears that not only did the disciples believe in Jesus, 
But apparently, this, per, this first Passover trip had a great impact on not just a few of them, but many that were gathered at the Passover. Now John, he doesn't specify the signs, but apparently Jesus did perform some miracles in addition to driving everybody out of the temple. Perhaps he healed some sick people. Perhaps the blind or the lame. We don't know. We only know that there were visible signs of his power, and even those that may have been angered by him clearing out the temple may have also been impressed by that show of strength. Hey, that would be a good leader. Someone that can clear everybody out. Might have been impressed by that. Bothered, but impressed. That same power and authority, maybe they started to see Jesus as a, Jesus as a potential leader. Of course he is. At any rate, John states that not a few, but many believed in him at that Passover. Many. Now, if knowing Christ, or rather being known by Christ as his own, was just about being religious or acknowledging a belief in Jesus, we might think that chapter 2 should end with verse 23. But it doesn't, does it? It doesn't end with 23. 23 says, now when he was in Jerusalem, during the feast, many believed on his name. Close it right there, John. It doesn't stop there. It says Jesus did not commit himself to them. Jesus reveals something here, and if you're listening online or here in the sanctuary, of the utmost importance to every single soul. Utmost importance. Jesus sees the heart, and he knows the difference between saving faith and a head knowledge type belief. Jesus can see the difference. One's counterfeit, one's real. If you're taking notes this morning, you see the title, He Knows His Own, Jesus Christ Determines True Faith. I'm going to look at two things this morning. First thing, if you're taking notes, the need of faith. Do you all believe we need faith? Everybody need, believe here that we need to have faith. Many in Jerusalem during that Passover feast, they believed in Jesus. But was their belief in things about Jesus more than trusting in him for salvation? The text tells us this is in fact the case. Many believed in Jesus when they saw the signs he did. Oh wow, he can heal me of something. He can fix my problems. But what about believing his word? Compare their belief to the testimony of Abraham, Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The same testimony is mentioned of Abraham three times in the New Testament, by Paul in Romans and Galatians, and then also in the book of James. But Abraham believed God. Believed God. No in-between, not believed in things about God, believed God. 
He believed the testimony of God, which would later become Abraham's testimony. Look back up for a second there at verse 22 again. What did the disciples believe? And they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus said. Isn't that interesting contrast? The people believed in the signs. The disciples believed in the scripture and the word that Jesus said. Abraham and the disciples, of course, they also believed in the signs and miracles of God. Don't you think the disciples believed in the miracles? Of course, they saw them. They were there when he fed the 5,000. Isaac was Abraham and Sarah's son of their old age. That's quite a miracle, isn't it? Abraham believed in the miracles of God. But he believed God outside the miracles. He believed the word of God. He believed what God told him, get out of Ur. And he went. Just the word. There was no miracle there. Just get out of Ur. Go to the land I'm going to show you. We can believe many things about Jesus. We can believe that he's God's son. We can believe that his teaching is true. We can believe that he was a prophet. We can believe that he was sent from God. We can believe in his miracles. We can believe even that he suffered and died on the cross. And we can believe that he rose from the dead. But is believing all those things salvation? No. No, a lot of people believe that. Not in and of themselves are they the work of salvation. We're told in James 2.19, you believe there is one God? Oh, foolish man. Why did I go to that one? Oh, sorry. Did I have the wrong verse up there? Go one more here. Nope. Did I skip it? There it is. Oh, sorry. Got ahead of myself. I hit the clicker too hard. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, James 2.19, you believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The demons believe everything. Remember, anytime Jesus encountered the demons, they were petrified. They knew everything about him was true. So the object of our faith, Christ being the object of our faith, the object of our faith, we all agree is imperative. It has to be Jesus. That's the object of our faith. We believe that the object of our faith is imperative. It has to be the true and living God through the Son of God. We believe that the object of our faith is important because nobody comes to God but through Jesus. So believing in Jesus is going to be imperative, meaning the object of our faith. But the essence of our faith is equally important to the object of our faith. So it has to be Christ, but it has to be a real faith. It has to be Jesus and no other substitute. It has to be him, which the, even the demons know he's the real son of God. They know he's the Messiah. So when other people say, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in Jesus, the demons do believe in Jesus. But they don't have the essence of faith. They, have the, they understand who is the Savior, but they don't put their trust in. They never did. They walked away. They left with Satan out of heaven and the fallen angels. And then people follow that same bad path. Say, I don't really believe in Jesus, or I believe in him, but on my terms. So the essence of our faith is equally important. Is it real, and is it based in a humble surrender to Christ, or is it something else? In other words, is it genuine? 
I already put it on the screen, but James tells us in the next verse, this is 2.19. Now let's look at 2.20. But do you know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So he goes from, un, he goes from demons that believe in Jesus, but he says, what kind of works do demons produce? Not good works. Evil works. But he's telling mankind, he's telling the church, James is the half-brother of Jesus, he's telling the church, if you have a faith that is dead, that produces nothing for God, you don't have saving faith. You see, throughout the Bible, we're warned of self-deception, wrong motives, going through the motions, empty religion, false conversion, particularly in the New Testament, this is made really clear from Matthew through Revelation. So much so that even in the book of Revelation, Jesus comes to what? The seven churches. And even says, some of you are lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I get all the way to the book of Revelation, and it's still being, Jesus talked about it with things like the wise virgins and the foolish virgins, right? Some were ready, some had the oil of the Holy Spirit, some did not. But on the outside, they might look the same. So he's saying that it's very, very important to understand, is our faith genuine? And that's the point that James is making. A life without a change that ends up changing to now serve Christ, it doesn't ha- if, you, if that's not happening, if that hasn't happened, it's a dead faith. And understand, brother and sister, we can't change ourselves. We all agree with that, right? You cannot change yourself. You cannot say, one day I decided I'm going to be a really godly person from here going forward has to be the Lord. We can't change ourselves. That work is only done by the Holy Spirit. We cannot produce a new life. We can't produce a life that serves Christ. And the works of the Spirit, all those things are done only with the help of the Holy Spirit, only with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 makes this Crystal clear, 8.9 says, If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Someone can't say, well, I'm saved, but I don't have the Holy Spirit stuff you all believe in. You don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have salvation. It's imperative. This truth, by the way, this truth in Romans 8.9, you know, there's a whole theological breakdown of salvation in the book of Romans. You know, you guys know my good friend Sam Nadler, one of my mentors in the faith. The, the two books that he loves to teach um, from the New Testament, as far as really kind of breaking down the theology of salvation, our faith, is Romans and Hebrews. He likes to take both of those books. And there's many other, again, they're all important. You know, I'm quoting from different parts of the uh, scriptures, but two very important passages. Now, this truth in Romans 8 9, it follows Paul's explaining in previous chapters faith and believing. Faith and believing in the work of salvation. In fact, he mentions faith in the book of Romans 38 times faith is mentioned in the book of Romans. He mentions believe 21 times. Pretty important, those two words, faith and belief or believing. Romans 4, 5 Going back a couple of chapters, he says, but to him who does not work, but believes. Aren't you glad you don't have to work for your salvation? You can't work for your salvation. You can't do enough for God to be saved. But to him who does not work, but believes 
in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. Same thing as Abraham, right? His faith was accounted as righteousness. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's always through Jesus, again, the object of our faith, but the essence, there has to be a sincere, saving, surrender to God faith. And yet it not, it's not by works. I was saved the day I surrendered, me and my wife on the same day, June 1995. We had not done anything good for God. We were saved that day. The works came after. But because we had been changed, the night before we closed down the bar, we didn't want to go close down the bar anymore. And that was just a change that took place in us. All of a sudden, we had new desires because the Spirit of God comes in. But it wasn't by works. It was by faith. And yet, faith that produces something. That's what James is saying. If you don't have the works of God, then the faith is dead. We'll be looking a whole lot more at the supernatural work of salvation in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. But this issue, because in John chapter 3, you guys all know, Nicodemus comes at night. As Sam likes to call it, Nick at night. Uh, at, at the, uh, uh, we'll get to that, the third chapter. Either next Sunday or the Sunday after. I might be preaching a message next Sunday called Arise and Go, but um, whatever the Lord has. So it'll be the next Sunday, the week after, we'll get into John 3, and then into John 4 with the Samaritan woman. So we'll see more of the supernatural work of salvation. I was talking to a pastor yesterday. We were talking for like an hour yesterday afternoon, just praying over each other's churches and just talking about the Lord. And we were talking about the work of salvation. We both agreed that so much of salvation is beyond our comprehension. How God does it, when we were reeled in, how we were reeled in, when our eyes were opened, and when we exercised saving faith. Because I had, how many had said sinner's prayer before you finally got saved? I had. And none of them stuck. They weren't saving faith. Lord, how did I get to saving faith? Where does sovereign grace come in? Where does free will come in? I don't know. Some of you that are way smarter than me, which I don't think you are, because I've seen the books written on both sides of all these things, and ultimately, it is a mysterious work, and Jesus says as much in John chapter 3, just to get ahead of ourselves. And yet there has to be this faith, this saving faith. It's, in, it's essential. Um, Ephesians 2.8 tells us this. For by grace, we understand grace. Oh, Lord, thank you for grace. That's what got me to the altar in the first place, or that's what got me to my knees. For by grace you have been saved through it. What, here it is again. We do have a role to play. Faith. Why does God keep telling us we have to have faith? Because we do. And, that, and yet it's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. So there's definitely a mysterious work of God, the work of grace, but actually... He still calls upon us to exercise faith. Abel did, Cain didn't. Right? Same opportunities. Let's look at our only second and final point this morning. So we have the fact that um, there's the need of faith. Let's take a look at the one that tests faith or tests any of our faith. So Jesus, he was in the capital city of Jerusalem for this particular Passover. We understand Jerusalem was the capital. He was in that capital city for Passover. And I thought this recent report was noteworthy given, uh, given our uh, recent 
elections and all the political upheaval in our country. Uh, this, uh, I saw this report in a number of news sources, uh, but um, the 117th Congress, did y'all know it's 88% Christian? <laughs> Things are going to go great in our country. 88% Christian in Congress. Awesome to know, isn't it? If this was true, if this was true, if this was Christianity as Jesus would define it, do you think our nation would be as idolatrous, hateful, immoral, unstable, rebellious, and fill in every other thing you want? If this was true, if this was Christianity as Jesus would define the disciples, would we have the mess we have? Would the slaughter of unborn, would we have all the things that you see, and really just the vitriol? Of course not. Now, I'm positive. By the way, I didn't put on the screen Republicans or Democrats. I just, it just says Congress. I don't know who is who in this mix. Doesn't matter. But I'm positive and grateful that there are some Christians in Washington. I know there are. I know that we've got Christian senators and House of Representatives. We've got people in Washington that are saved. But it's a small number, just like it is in every other part of the country. But a Christian, a Christian, the word Christian, a Christian is one that is in Christ. They're part of the body of Christ. We're going to be taking of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because we're part of his body in just a little bit. A Christian is one that is in Christ. In ancient Rome, they began calling the followers of Christ Christians because they were like little Christ. They said they lived like Christ. Do you think Congress lives like Christ? Some, but not most. It's not the religious labels. Christianity is not the religious label that we've turned it into. It's not a checkbox that you just kind of say, uh, what's, what's your denomination? I've met many people in my life, they don't even say Christian. I'm Presbyterian, I'm Methodist, I'm this, I'm that. Say, no, no, no. Are you in Christ? And I've had many of them look at me like I'm from outer space when I ask that question. What do you mean? I told you I'm Presbyterian. Does that not solve all your... I told you I'm Methodist or I'm Baptist or... No. But even if they say Christian, it's not a label that we've turned it into. If we're a Christian, we've been saved by grace with genuine faith. By grace, with genuine faith. Jesus did not commit himself to them. Why? It wasn't a genuine faith. By the way, Jesus says, as, as, it, as it relates to people that call themselves Christians, we will know them by their fruits. You know Jesus said that? We'll have some discernment Ultimately, only God can tell who is actually saved. I'm not going around telling, you're saved, you're not saved. That's ultimately God's decision. But we'll know people by their fruits, which allows us to make really good judgment calls in life. Who to partner with, who to marry. Don't be unequally yoked. I mean, you would be able to see the fruit. I have three daughters. I want them to marry godly men. They'd be able to see fruit in their life. So you have to be able to, uh, as Greg Laurie says, we're fruit inspectors, you know, to some degree. But who ultimately decides if someone has genuine faith or doesn't have genuine faith? Jesus decides, doesn't he? He makes the decision. He said, I will not commit myself to them. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 for just a second. Go left in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 7. 
We're reading a couple of passages that people like to skip over, but since we go verse by verse of the Bible, we don't skip. You just go ahead and hit it if it's there and say, Lord, help us to digest this and receive this. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, fruit inspection, but also he's the determining factor of what genuine faith is. It's not you or not me. Pick it up with me in verse 18, Matthew 7, 18. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. That's, we can pretty much tell who's a believer. If you see someone says, yeah, I gave my life to Jesus, and I'm only committing like one murder a year now. <laughs> oh, great. Clean it up. You used to do three. Uh, so, you know. You would, you would be able to say there's not a change here. Well, altering of life, but not a change, not a transform, uh, transformation in their life. Pick it up. Uh, going forward, verse 21, Jesus goes on. Remember, all this is red letter in your Bible. This is not the apostles talking. This is Jesus himself. Red letter words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. This is matches up with James' faith without works is dead. I mean, if you're saved, you'll end up doing the works of Christ. You won't be perfect. You'll skin your knees. You'll mess up. But you will proceed forward to do the will of God. He who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We live in a lawless nation. People call themselves Christian, but they're lawless. They don't live under the law of God because the law of God hasn't been written where? On the tablets in their heart. And the reason it's not written on the tablets of their heart, they haven't exercised saving faith to amazing grace. And therefore, Jesus does not commit himself to them, doesn't come in and reside in them because they still don't want him. They want things about him but not actually him. Back to John chapter 2. Now thank the Lord, we don't have to wait till judgment day to find out if we're in Christ. Amen to that, huh? You do not have to wait till judgment day to figure out, was my faith genuine or not? Isn't that great to know? I don't want to wait till then to find out. I want to know now. By the way, for people to think you can lose your salvation, Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. Never knew you. Now, I do believe that uh, there can be false conversions, but again, if it's real, it's real. The Bible says we're sealed until the day of redemption. Jesus said you have eternal life. You'll see this in the book of John. Have it, present, you, you possess eternal life. We're seated already in the heavenlies. But we don't have to wait till Judgment Day to find out if we're really saved. We can run to His grace, we can fall at the foot of the cross, and we can ask Him to save and change us. Any person can do that at any time the Holy Spirit has convicted them that you're not in me. We can do it immediately. We can't understand everything about salvation. I can teach the theology of it, but it's still a work of the Spirit. We can't understand every single thing about when God gets us to heaven, he's going to explain a lot of things that we didn't quite grasp, but we were soundly saved and transformed, even if we couldn't understand some of the mysterious work of God. We'll see, again, more of that in coming chapters. But we have enough 
truth, more than enough truth, to respond by faith on our part, even if we can't fully understand God's part. Right? I don't even understand fully. Why did it have to be a cross? Why couldn't it have been this kind of death? Why did it have to be shed blood? Why couldn't it be shed water? Even though the water did come out as well, even the spear. But my point is, God ordains everything about salvation. Some of it I understand. Some of it is way above my pay grade. And I accept it all by what? Faith. Abraham didn't understand everything about where he was going. He understood what he did understand is... God said it, I believe it. And it was accounted unto him as righteousness. That's what changed. We just believe what God has revealed to us. He's revealed more than enough. I love this quote. I don't even know who the first name of the person is. They are a believer. We just read Matthew 7. But this uh, quote, I don't, their last name is May, but I just got it out of a book. All difficulties cannot be solved. They are too wise who are not content to sometimes wonder. There's a lot of wonder in the cross. There's a lot of wonder in the work of being born again, which Jesus will talk about in John chapter 3. But there's more than enough truth to accept what we do know and say, Lord, I'm dead in my trespass and sin. Please save me. We're told by Jesus to have a simple, sincere belief that as what? A child. You know what I love about children? They accept things on face value. You tell, you tell them that this exists, they believe it. I'm not going to ruin any Christmases for any kids here. They don't anything like that. But, but you've got to be like a child. Did you know you're not allowed to really debate God? You can try. There's no debate. You can't debate your way into heaven and say, I, I, I looked at all the verses and they just didn't make sense to me. I've had people tell me that. I've had people tell me they're, that are atheists that have read the whole Bible and they still find it all a bunch of contradictions. And I say, if I see a contradiction, I'm at fault. I guarantee it. There's something I'm not getting here that God wants me to understand. You can't debate your way into the kingdom. You can bow the knee Jesus said it himself, Matthew 18, 3, unless you are converted and become as little children. In other words, you're going to have to stop debating God and start believing God. Unless you become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom. And children don't care about who's political leaders, but people in Jerusalem at the Passover, they do want political leaders. Kids don't care about that. Kids care about are we going to Chick-fil-A or not, right? Adults like that too, but uh, you get the point. You've got to become like a little child. We're not told. We're not told anywhere in the Bible to say a sinner's prayer. Did you know that? There's not a single verse that says say a sinner's prayer. That's a term we've given to people confessing with the mouth. But there is a confession that is required in uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your where? Heart that God has raised from the dead, you will be saved. You see the simplicity of the gospel, but you see the power of the gospel. I love when I'm talking to people about cleaning up our nation, and they tell me how complex everything is and all this stuff. The problem is you don't believe in the power of the gospel. When the gospel changes a person, everything changes. You don't have to convince them to stop being mean. You don't have to convince them to stop stealing. You don't have to convince them to stop committing adultery. They have been changed from the inside out, and all of a sudden they want to follow God and do the things, and all of a sudden they become 
contributing members to peace and blessing as opposed to problem, chaos, and disrepair. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. The heart is the key. It does a complete change. Like I said, personally, I had said sinner's prayers prior to my conversion in 1995. What made the difference? What made the difference in sinner's prayers versus a confession that was with the mouth and of the heart that was saving faith? Jesus said in John 16, 8, And when he, who is this he? The Holy Spirit, the Comforter. When he, the Holy Spirit, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. My prior prayers, I didn't want to go to hell. A lot of people don't, if they believe in it. A lot of, a lot of Americans don't even believe in hell anymore, so that part they're not even considering. I definitely did believe in hell, and I definitely didn't want to go there, and I knew I was doing things that could send me there. By the way, you don't do a specific sin to go to hell. You're born in sin. We're born in iniquity, the Bible says. We then do sins because we are sinners. Certain sins don't make us sinners. We're sinners, therefore we sin. Right? But I didn't want to go to hell. But the Spirit convicted me that I was a sinner and of the specific sins and that I needed Christ's righteousness. And there was a desperation where I threw the weight of my soul into his hands, fully trusting him. The Bible says, you've got to fall on the rock that you'll be broken, the rock being Christ. I've heard the same testimony from so many people over the years, changed by God's grace. Years ago, um, again, it has to be God producing that desperation that we say, Lord, please save us. We're tired of running from you. We're running to you. Years ago, really, I think it was the summer right after we got saved in 1995, we were at a Harvest Crusade with Greg Laurie. Um, we were already saved, so we were there like cheering that other people would get saved. And Greg told the story of Charles Blondin. And I've kind of like thrown a snippet of it out here and there over the years, but I never really told the story. I wanted to tell it to close this morning. Charles Blondin, he was born in 1824. At the age of five... He was sent to a school in Lyon, France, to be trained as an acrobat. They sent him away at the age of five to be trained as an acrobat. He was incredibly athletic. He was an acrobatic, acrobatic prodigy, in extremely athletic, off the charts daring even as a child. Everyone could see it. As he learned to tightrope, he became the best tightrope walker in the world, not even close. Attempting feats had never been attempted, displayed just a fearless skill and ability. His fame grew exponentially when on June 30th, 1859, he crossed the 1,100-foot Niagara Gorge over Niagara Falls on a tightrope, like that, this big. He was the first to ever do it. Over the next several years, he crossed it numerous times with various props. One time he actually crossed it with a little table, plopped the table down, cooked an omelet, ate the omelet all on a tightrope. There's pictures of it. You can go look them up. His name was so well known 
His name was so well known in his harrowing feats that President Lincoln was compared to him tightroping would the nation collapse in the Civil War? Or could he take and lead the country across this little rope to a united country again? We might be entering our own tightrope, by the way, in this country. On one occasion, on one occasion, as he was going back and forth over Niagara Falls, see the wheelbarrow? He would go back and forth with the wheelbarrow. He would put stuff in the wheelbarrow, back and forth across the falls, 1,100 feet down. And the crowd was roaring. It's said that he came back across at one point, got, get, gets back on land, and he asked the audience, and by the way, you can see the crowds on these bridges here, on the Gorge Bridge. There's crowds of people. You can't write all in there. Um, it said that he asked the audience, do you believe that I can carry a person across the gorge in a wheelbarrow? And they enthusiastically, enthusiastically shouted, yes, we believe, we believe you can do it. We believe it. And then he asked for a volunteer <laughs> to get in the wheelbarrow. True story. He asked for someone, anyone, to get in the wheelbarrow. Silence. Nobody came forward. They believed, but not enough to trust him with their life. And this is the work of faith and belief that happens, that must happen in our coming to Christ, that we trust him and letting everything else go. We trust him enough to let everything else go. And by faith, Faith that hears Christ, faith that believes Christ, and leaves the crowd to come with Christ. And then trust him to get us to the other side. Are you trusting him to get you to the other side? Billy Graham said, I'm trusting him to get me to the other side. Larry King was still trusting in himself. I, you know, I pray in his final moments he didn't, but are you going to get in the wheelbarrow with Jesus? and say, I know you'll get me to the other side. I was convinced that June day that if I got into his hands, he'd get me to the other side. That he would change me. All the sins I couldn't stop sinning and doing, that he could finally say, you will stop them. You will not want to do them anymore. You might have a random thought, but you won't pursue them anymore if you'll get into my hands. Not a wheelbarrow, but into my hands. We can't believe things about Jesus we have to believe in him. Not in the head, but in our heart. It's been said the farthest distance we'll travel is 18 inches from what? The head to the heart. The farthest distance we'll travel in this lifetime. But if we die to ourselves and commit our hearts and lives to Jesus and surrender, he will commit himself to us. He, he's committed himself to me. He's brought me in. He's brought many of you in. I hope all of you, most of you, at least... But he promises to seal us with the Holy Spirit and to change us and to save us for eternity. One final verse and we'll come to a close here. Ephesians 1.3 In him you also trusted that's it, getting into that wheelbarrow. You trusted. After you heard, you had to hear him make the call, the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation in whom having believed there's that faith you were sealed. Once God seals something, it's a done deal. 
brother and sister. I want you to seal with the Holy Spirit of promise. Amen? Amen? You don't have to wait till judgment day. But it's not smart to give it another day if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful that even though we don't understand everything about the work of salvation, it was preordained before the foundations of the earth, Lord. You were slain before the foundation of the earth. Lord, we don't understand why you chose the means, but we understand that the object is Jesus. The gateway, the door, one of his names, the door, the way, the truth, the life. But Lord, you send your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and of righteousness, and that there really is a judgment to come, that we're appointed unto man once to die. And even the fear of death, Lord, is a good thing if it brings us to examining your truths, your gospel, Lord. But but we have to then desire, Jesus, to be transformed, to be changed, for our sin nature to be replaced by the new nature of your righteousness. And Lord, I thank you that you've done that in my life and many of my brothers and sisters here in the sanctuary and watching online. But Lord, there's some that you've not committed yourself to them yet because they've not committed themselves to you yet. They believe things about you but haven't put their faith and trust in you. They've not been willing to leave the crowd and trust you with their entire life and soul to get them to the other side. Lord, I pray that if there's any hearing right now that they would respond to this free gift and not wait and hear the words, I never knew you, but hear the words today, welcome to the family of God. If there's anyone, just keep your heads bowed. If there's anyone in this room, I, I've given the gospel message a bunch of times. The thing about the book of John is we're going to get a lot of the gospel. Because John is heavy on, John 3 we'll talk about it. John 4 we'll talk about it. If there's anyone here and want to raise your hand and say, I, I want to ask Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I've said sinner's prayers, but I, God has convicted me in a, in a depth of my soul that I can't describe that I need to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. I can't even fully explain the gospel. I can only present it because the work is work of the Holy Spirit. Anyone online, anyone in this room, again, just raise your hand. If I can't see if you're online, if your hands are raised or your heart spoken to, I want to lead you in a prayer. And again, a sinner's prayer doesn't save you. It's the confession of the mouth and believing in the heart. But I want you, if you're online and you are in this room, just pray. If you are ready to give your heart and life to Jesus and let him take you to the other side and change you forever, Lord Jesus, just pray with me. Thank you for coming. Thank you for living a sinless life. Thank you for preaching the everlasting gospel. Thank you, Lord, for, according to the will of the Father, dying the cruel death of a Roman cross, for shedding your blood to cover my sins. Lord, I confess I'm a sinner, born in sin. I've committed many sins. Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Wash me. Cleanse me. For I've decided this day to believe in you, to believe on you, put my full faith and trust in you as my Lord and Savior. Seal me and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.